This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm your host, Samantha Lom, and today we're talking to Timothy Blauvelt about his new book, Clientelism and Nationalism in an Early Soviet Fiefdom, The Trials of Nestor Lakoba. Well, thank you, Tim, for being here with us. Would you like to say a couple of words about yourself? Well, um, I... Guess I would say that I am uh, in the alt ac field, so I'm, I'm, I have two jobs. So I am a professor of Soviet and post-Soviet studies at Ilya State University in Tbilisi, Georgia, uh, and at the same time, I am the regional director for the South Caucasus for American Councils for International Education, and I am based in Tbilisi, in Georgia, where I have been living consistently for the last twenty years. Interesting. Bet you don't get much snow down here, there, which is nice. We're up to our eyeballs in snow here. It's been almost 10 years since we've seen snow in Tbilisi. More, that lasts for more than half an hour. I can mail you some. <laughs> uh, so this is a really interesting project. What got you specifically interested in this topic? Well, I'm not sure how far to go back. Um, so... Um, I would say that my my background is um, actually in political science rather than history, um, and I really became interested in the former Soviet Union in, in the mid nineteen nineties um, when uh, it was sort of the the very end of of Sovietology, and I had been studying doing summer classes in in Russia um, in the mid nineteen nineties, and at that time the the first Chechen war uh, was going, and I sort of became interested in the periphery. Um, I ended up uh, coming to the Caucasus, and I ended up doing my dissertation um, in political science about about Georgia. Um, and um, the fact of the existence of of this conflict um, between Georgia and its uh, its former autonomous territory of, of Abkhazia um, was, from the very beginning, it's sort of always an elephant in the room in in Georgia. And I had the opportunity uh, to go there a few times in the 2000s in my role as um, as an education bureaucrat doing exchange programs for American councils. Um, so it's it, going there, especially when you live in Georgia, is sort of like going through the looking glass um, and to to seeing things from a really different perspective. And it's a place where most Georgians actually can't go. And it, it's it's quite can be quite difficult to get there. Um, but one of the things that that struck me about this 
place, Abkhazia, which is a really tiny little place on the uh, on the coast of the Black Sea. It's sort of semi-tropical. It uh, was in the Soviet period a, a vacation paradise. It was also a major place for the production of, of tobacco and also citrus fruit and tea and things like that. Um, one of the things that, that I kind of noticed uh, was that whoever was in charge of that territory in the Soviet period um, had tremendous amount of political capital because leaders went there. And in the, in the, in the 20s and 30s, it was the elites and Stalin had dachas there. And when Stalin went, all of his, his entourage went. Um, it began to become a, a center of, of tourism. And, and especially after in the later period, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it became a major site for tourism. Um, one, I would say specifically the one thing that kind of uh, gave me an aha moment was reading a, a book by one of the party bosses there, a guy named Akakim Galadze, uh, who wrote his biography. And this guy was a really serious Stalinist, and his he was such a Stalinist that he named his titled his biography Stalin Kakim Yevoznal, so Stalin as I knew him, and. and Galadze in that book, as the secretary in Abkhazia, is describing all of these cases where uh, he would be walking out on the on the seaside with Stalin and talking about, well, we need this and we need that and we great to have this, uh, and Stalin would say, okay, say the word. Um, this Galadze then became the first secretary in Georgia, and he did the same thing. He said, well, we should, we really need to build a factory city in Rustavi in Georgia. And, told this to Stalin while vacationing in, in Abkhazia, and Stalin said, yeah, okay, go ahead and, and do that. So uh, it, it struck me that whoever has control of this has tremendous amount of political capital because it gives you this, this kind of face time uh, with the leadership. And that's especially the case uh, in the Stalin period because Stalin was there so often. But it, it really continues in later periods as well because so many of the elites would spend time there. So I... Uh, uh, began uh, in the mid-2000s becoming really interested in, in the archives here in Georgia. And there's a really amazing um, and open archives, especially the party archives and the KGB archives, um, and uh, becoming interested in this um, political status of Abkhazia and sort of looking at the the background to what would later become this ethnic conflict um, between Abkhazia and the Georgians um, in in the, in the 1990s, um, and so I, I wrote a paper, uh, an article in in 2007 on uh, Abkhazia um, patronage and power uh, in a, in the Stalin period, uh, and since then I, I wrote a few more articles um, based on archival documents about nationality policy, about linguistic policy, and um, mainly in in the Stalin period, and I had this idea that I wanted to write, uh, maybe put together some of the articles that I had already published, uh, write a few new chapters, and, and make a book about Abkhazia in the Soviet period. Uh, and I actually got some way to do that. I wrote some chapters about the 60s and 70s. Um, but in digging deeper and deeper into the archives, um, I came across some really interesting files about the earlier period, and especially from the 1920s and into the very early 1930s. And that's a period where Soviet archives are, are tremendously rich. You know, Later on in the Stalin period, they, be, they become you know, much more um, reduced um, they, by the, by the 60s, 70s, they become very formulaic. Um, but in the 1920s and the early 30s, you have all sorts of um, uh, arguments, you have denunciations, uh, you have stenograms of, of, of discussions and, and disputes, and, and it's really rich and interesting. And it occurred to me that there's just so much there uh, that I could uh, 
would be much more interesting to write about that specific period, uh, about the 1920s and the 1930s, and the political, the particular kind of political game that seemed to emerge from that, um, that showed this kind of intersection of um, of informality and clientelism in local politics, uh, and also and nationality policy. So I ended up ditching the the larger project, although at some point in the future, maybe I'll get back to that uh, or publish those articles about the, the 60s and 70s. But uh, the book is really focused on on the 1920s and, and the 1930s and about the particular leadership situation uh, in Abkhazia and its relationship with, uh, with the centers in plural. So let's talk about the sources you use. You talk about the archives, and certainly my experience has been, yeah, in the 20s and 30s, they're really willing to spill some fun tea in uh, party meeting minutes and stuff. But I notice you also have archives from the United States that you use as well. So one of the, the really interesting sources for this particular project uh, is a collection, um, the personal papers of, of Nestor Lacoba. I'm sure we'll get to talking about Lacoba uh, in, in more depth in a bit. Uh, his personal papers, this is the, the, the local boss in Abkhazia in the 20s and 30s, uh, and his personal papers ended up in the Hoover Institution uh, at Stanford University. Um, and these are his, his own personal papers that uh, his wife buried in the floorboards of their apartment in 1937 before she was arrested. Uh, They were dug up um, 20 years later by a relative coming back from the Gulag, uh, and somehow they ended up in in Stanford. So it's a really interesting collection. It's three boxes. Uh, It's not very large. Um, The third box of that is is mainly photographs, and some of the photographs from that archive are are really quite well known. Like If you've read a book about Stalin, you've probably seen some of the photographs from that collection, like the photographs of Stalin um in, at, on, in a resort um, there's a famous photograph of of, of Beria holding Stalin's daughter uh, on on his knee um, yeah and, that and was those, creepy given yes. Beria's <laughs> given Beria's reputation with women it just that one always makes me vomit a little yep yeah and so that uh collection has has been used a lot actually it, it's it's a fairly well-known collection um and uh there are uh things about um, Trotsky's visits to to Suhumi uh, during the time of the the Lenin's death and the succession, um, they've been used by a number of historians. Stephen Kotkin uses them extensively in his three volume biography of, of of Stalin. But there are a lot of other documents that are handwritten, that are uncategorized, um, that are in complete disarray. <laughs> uh, so uh, it, I, I photographed, actually, I would say that um, six or seven years ago, I, I had somebody at, uh, at Stanford volunteered to photograph those documents, some of those documents for me. And then in 2017, I was able to go there in person and photograph the entire collection. Uh, and uh, taking weeks to sort of transcribe uh, these handwritten documents, put them in order, figure out what's going on. And then to combine those with these other files that I had been finding in the Georgian archives. Uh, and that was that was sort of the key. A lot of the things that are there really make sense only when you put them together um, with the the documents in the in the Georgian party archives. One of the one of the problems of doing research in Abkhazia particularly um, is that there is an there is an archive in Abkhazia. There was a state archive that had both government and party documents in it. Uh, but it was a victim of the conflict. So uh, in 1992, the Georgian paramilitaries set fire to the archive, and it, it burned. 
So sort of Foucault in action. Um, so it was, it was more or less completely destroyed. But many of the the documents relating to Abkhazia in the Soviet sort of way of of, of processing documents were were duplicated uh, and are also held in in Tbilisi. So that's always uh, nice when they do that. <laughs> it, it is. Uh, so putting those two things together, and, and again, there are a few things that I came across. One really interesting and, and sort of unexpected one was a a file in a collection uh, that I didn't even know about until about 2010 when it was discovered in the party archives. And that's the, the collection of the Asobe Papkia, so that like the special files of the Central Committee of, of the Georgian Communist Party. And it's, it's a set of files that are there. They're bound in white. Um, and <laughs> and the things in them are, are really completely random. And for some reason, uh, I, there was a whole file in there uh, from 1925 marked Nestor Lakoba. And it, it was a part of a political conflict, um, a political struggle between different factions. Um, and that became another element of um, understanding this, uh, what, what was going on there and trying to get a picture of the underlying political game. Yeah, my experience is the files that actually have names on them are usually great because it's usually some kind of investigation into some sort of horrible complaint. And they've done basically all the work for you. And you're like, yes, so much juiciness. <laughs> Yeah, and I have no idea why it was there or, or why it was preserved. Um, but yeah, yeah, sometimes just... things end up random places. I found a really interesting investigation on a rape case once in a file of crop statistics. Like, who, who put this there? Yeah, and this is, I think, a larger problem of dealing with, with archives and former Soviet archives that, um, you know, you're dealing with, with opacity, with these, you know, indexes of, of, of files. And uh, sometimes they are labeled um, in a very descriptive way, uh, but sometimes the description can look really interesting and you get the file and it turns out to be completely nothing. Uh, or you can have a description that simply says correspondent, like Pedipiska. And that's where the really interesting stuff is <laughs> until you get in and dig around and, and, and order files and spend a lot of time with them. Often you don't know what, what you're going to come across. Yeah. The archivists always ask me why I order everything. And I'm like, because you can't tell till you open the folder what's in there. And with RICOM stuff, you know, it really depends on who's taking the meeting minutes, whether it's the very formulaic, like one sentence descriptions, or if there's, you know, whole descriptions of the huge fight they just had. Um, and it's really up to the secretary. So yeah, it's a crapshoot a lot of times. So let's move on and talk about who exactly is Nestor Lakoba and why is he important? Well, Nestor Lakoba uh, was the boss of Abkhazia, but even more importantly than that, he was a, a Bolshevik revolutionary uh, and he was really hyper-connected. Uh, even, even before the revolution, he uh, knew Stalin uh, in his Caucasian revolutionary days. Um, he, uh, I think in part because, again, this sort of political capital of, of being the guy in charge of the place where people come to vacation gives you the opportunity to meet and interact with just about everybody. But there are photographs of him with virtually anybody from the early Soviet period, uh, early Soviet leadership that you could, that you could name. And there's pictures of him with with Zhukov and Gayan and, you know, and just about everybody and, and literary figures as uh, as well who, who often also spent time in Abkhazia. So he was the uh, he was the head of the government institutions of the uh, the Council of People's Deputies of the Sovnarkom. Um, so head of the government institutions, um, and he uh, through his connections and through the fact that he was a ethnic Abkhaz. So the titular nationality of the Republic of Abkhazia, um, he 
created his uh, his network, uh, which uh, enabled him to maintain leadership in Abkhazia um, from 1921 up until his uh, somewhat mysterious death in in 1936. So for 15 years, which was quite a long tenure um, in, in in Soviet parlances, especially in the, the earlier parts of the Soviet period. So you've talked about some of the personal characteristics that allowed him to grab the ear of Soviet elite in your book. Can you explain what his personality was like to our listeners? Well, he seems to have been very different from the normal kind of Stalinist era party boss. You know, he wasn't the bombastic, um, profanity spewing, uh, overbearing kind of figure um, that many of the stereotypical kinds of party leaders um, would, would represent. He was uh, he was physically small. Uh, he was known to be. Uh, he was hard of hearing, so he was handicapped. And some of the photographs in that, uh, in, in the Stanford collection, um, he has a, a a hearing aid, a very primitive one, a huge box connected to earphones. And sometimes in photographs, he's actually mislabeled as as a as a radio operator because he's wearing this. Um, <laughs> oh, poor thing. <laughs> uh, and he was he was known for uh, using these pithy abhas folk sayings, uh, and um, he. On the other hand, I mean, we'll speak about the how he is perceived in memory um, later on, and particularly how he is viewed in in Abkhazia itself. And to this day, Nestor Lakoba is sort of seen as as a founding father, um, as uh, as a kind of George Washington figure. And the I think that's another reason that I became interested in Lakoba in this period, because visiting Abkhazia um, in the in the two thousands, um, the cent- one of the central streets in Sukhumi, the capital city of Sukhum, is is Lakoba Street, and the the most prestigious school um, where we were doing testing for the exchange programs was the number ten school named for Lakoba, where they have a bust of Lakoba uh, in it. Um, so he uh, was uh, for the Abkhaz this kind of uh, father figure, this this kind of mythologized um, ideal figure. Um, on the other hand, what came across in in these party documents and in these conflicts that I wrote about in the book is is a figure that's that's really um, more complex than that. And you know, he can be very, despite not being bombastic and loud, he was uh, ruthless, sometimes vindictive, uh, and uh, always in control. He also, again, he he had these personal relationships, and he had this kind of reputation as you go to Abkhazia and Lakoba will give you a good time. He'll do toasts. He'll you know he'll keep everybody entertained. He sort of fulfills that kind of almost Caucasian stereotype of the the hospitable host, and that, that's a sort of aspect of the Caucasus that um, is was true then, and it's certainly true now that the um, the line between hospitality and captivity. Uh, is is very kind of narrow, and you, you're never entirely sure what side of that that line you're on. Um, but he was able to make use of that, uh, not only to make connections, but to to develop uh, trust relationships. You note that he is actually genuinely popular with the peasants, which is unusual. Um, most party and state bosses are kind of resented. How did he maintain his popularity with the peasants, or what did he do that made them love him? Mm-hmm. And of course, we, we don't have opinion polls uh, from that period, but it, that is the sense that one gets. It's certainly the sense that's portrayed in the later historiography and in the literature um, uh, about about Lakoba. Um, I mean, he was 
from them. Uh, he was from the people. He came from the um, from the area of Abkhazia, which is sort of the the homeland of the ethnic Abkhaz from Gudauta in the center of Abkhazia. Um, and especially later on, when collectivization begins, when uh, pressure is put on the peasants, they are very direct in their statements that we trusted you that. You, we made a compact with you, and that you represent us. You know, for them, for the Abkhaz peasantry, Soviet power, Moscow—that's somewhere far away, and that—that's his job. Um, our our uh, understanding is is that we made a deal with you, and that we would support the revolution, we would support uh, the Bolshevik cause and the creation of Soviet Abkhazia. Um, and now this contract is is um, is coming under threat because of of collectivization. But I think that that kind of reflects this. Um, this relationship that that Lakoba had with his with his constituency, and I think party bosses and, and party leaders in some cases did um, uh, develop a, a local constituency. But especially if if they came from a particular region, and even more so if there was the the national or the ethnic um, element to it, which there very much was in in Abkhazia. Well, I also get the sense from reading the book that uh, these informal personal relationships and connections are actually probably way more important in the Caucasus than they are in, say, Russia. Do you think that's true? Well, it's a kind of perennial question. Um, and there sort of gets at one of the, the core topics of the book is is informality and clientelism and patronage and, and how that, um, what role that plays in, in leadership and in politics, um, especially in the early Soviet period. I mean, you have a situation where uh, when the Bolsheviks come to power, they have this enormous territory that they need to administer, and they need to get things done. And the the local Bolshevik um, bosses uh, throughout this vast territory have uh, they have things they have to do too. They have to meet the requirements of the center. They have to fulfill uh, particular tasks, and they are in a situation where they're few and far between, where they're surrounded by a massive population who really doesn't understand what they're talking about or what Bolshevism is or what the goals of the regime are. Um, And so the way that they accomplish their tasks is through building relationships with people they know, uh, creating these informal bonds um, at the local level and that connect them up through the center. And this, um, in, in sort of Soviet, rather Bolshevik slang, um, they even had words for this kind of thing. They, they would speak about nests and tails, that a nest would be sort of a local grouping um, around one boss who would develop these patronage relations and clients around him. And that would be tied together through uh, through a tail, a kind of vertical network that would connect to a regional center, and that would connect uh, all the way up to to Moscow, to the to the to the very center. Um, and so this was this was taking place throughout the Soviet Union, um, and it, it's in the, I guess you could say in a kind of situation where. Uh, you lack the formal institutions to make things happen. You lack the formal institutions to um, to ensure fulfillment, to ensure contracts and things like that. Sort of the, the way you do things is is to turn to these informal relationships, bonds of trust, bonds of honor. Um, you know, if you break those uh, those bonds, if you break your word, if you break the, the agreement, if you betray um, this kind of relationship, then you risk being excluded from those networks, which means you don't you can't rely on them when you need something. Um, so this question comes up about the Caucasus in, in particular. Um, it, it does seem that this mode of operating um, 
ha- goes back a really long way in the Caucasus, and one could make the argument that um, in a particular, perhaps it is particularly or even stronger in the Caucasus because because it was more deeply ingrained um, in 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 the culture of the Caucasus. But it, it really was something that was much beyond, goes much beyond the Caucasus. You could even say much beyond, even farther beyond the Soviet Union. Um, however, the Caucasians were able to make particular use of this. Um, and that becomes clear in the revolutionary movement, in the um, in the Bolshevik movement, the Caucasian Bolsheviks, Georgians especially, but not only Georgians. There were Armenians and, and Azerbaijanis and North Caucasians also involved in this. Um, but they were able to make use of these kinds of connections, these kinds of patronage networks to um, become dominant not only in the Caucasus, but to extend that power uh, all the way up to the center, and that is the very powerful Caucasus network um, that gets created from the uh, in the 1920s is is one of the bases of power uh, of Stalin, and and sort of uh, gives the uh, the foundation or one of the foundations on which Stalin was able to build his power, and that um, continues um, throughout the Stalin period. When Stalin dies, there is a kind of change in that, and, and uh, there's a kind of block on the advancement of, of Caucasians and Georgians in particular outside of the Caucasus. And so that the first half of the Soviet period up until the death of Stalin, uh, you could sort of uh, define as the, the political um, extension of, of Caucasus power. You might almost call this, um, and there's a really good book on this by, by Eric Scott on, called Familiar Strangers, who talks about the role of Georgians in the Soviet Union more generally. But it's a kind of um, colonization of the center by the periphery. Okay. Yeah, I just noticed when you look at Russians, I mean, certainly you do see um, patronage networks, but they don't go as deep, I get the impression, like they're more, because people don't stay as long. They are in a position for maybe three to five years and their frosty move with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't seem to have the deep connections with the locals that, you know, like Lakoba and stuff did. And maybe it's just a function of how quickly they move between positions. And and I think this is also has to do with the different ways that things functioned at different periods in in history. And and I think in the 1920s especially the, the 1920s up until the mid 1930s you had much more opportunities for developing the the nest aspect of these local networks. And and that became much more difficult and the the, the nature of patronage changed um from the late 1930s. So let's talk about nationality policy, because this is certainly an aspect that, you know, studying Russians, I don't really need to focus on. Um, But it appears to be key to your work. Can you explain to our listeners Soviet nationality policy as it relates to Lakoba's case, maybe a little bit about the policies of indigenization and ethnic federalism? Yeah, so uh, when the Bolsheviks came to power, um, there being Bolsheviks, their initial approach to nationality, to ethnicity, or to nationalism, uh, being Marxists, is that this is essentially the result of the bourgeois capitalist stage of development, and that once the revolution happens, once we move towards socialism and then communism, it will disappear. Um, so we don't really need to worry about it that much. Um, then during the the, the Civil War, um, after the revolution, they were in, in the periphery faced with the, the power of, of nationality and um, were convinced uh, that they needed to take at least temporarily a different approach, that they needed to somehow co-opt these 
feelings of nationalism. So uh, they took very specific decisions um, in the early 1920s that their policy would be uh, to encourage nationalism and develop nationalism as a means of, of depoliticizing it. So uh, the form that they take is that that took, um, well, there are several questions. I mean, there, there were arguments about this and there were you know discussions about how we should approach this. Um, one element of this is the actual structure that the Soviet Union uh, eventually took. And there were some who argued that uh, we should create a, uh, a structure and, and an arrangement um, which sort of resembles, uh, say, the United States, where you have different uh, territories which have certain degree of autonomy, but they're not classified ethnically, right? Like we don't have a Hispanic state or an African-American state uh, and so forth. So there were some who said we should we should do that. Given the reality of, of the of, of the international situation that they that they encountered in taking in reincorporating uh, what had previously been the Russian Empire uh, they had some territories that were really far along in this development of national ideas uh, you know there are some republics had actually concluded or had been recognized by the international community like like Azerbaijan or uh, Ukraine or, or Georgia uh, so ultimately they took the decision that we are going to keep those territories uh, and that we are going to assign those ethnicity to territories so we're going to keep a federal structure and that those federal uh, units will also be associated with ethnicities or nationalities. And so that results in this kind of ethno-federalism. Um, of course, they were all different sizes, and some were really big, and some were small, and some were within others. So you had, uh, you know, the, the biggest unit would be Union republics, and then within Union republics, you would have sometimes have uh, autonomous uh, autonomous republics or autonomous districts, oblasts, or even autonomous villages in some cases. Um, but that these would be tied to ethnicity, and that requires that a territory then have a a labeled ethnicity, what they called a titular ethnicity, so that each territory would have one ethnicity that would represent it. So Georgia would be for the ethnic Georgians, Armenia for the ethnic Armenians, Abkhazia for the ethnic Abkhaz, um, and and so forth. And there were exceptions to this. There were some republics like Dagestan that were created, for example, that didn't have a particular ethnic designation, often because they were just too ethnically complicated. But those are those are kind of rare. And almost all cases, and most cases. Each territory had this this kind of designation um, that it would belong to uh, an ethnic group, and in some cases, often this would be um, you know for particular political reasons. And Abkhazia is a really good case of that. So Abkhazia becomes uh, is designated as a republic within Georgia. Georgia itself, in the first two decades of Soviet power um, from 1922 to 1936, is itself part of a larger federation, the Transcaucasian Federation, which includes Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, but this territory of Abkhazia, which had a really complex ethnic makeup, uh, was designated um, for political reasons, I think, to in order to get support of the um, one of the groups there, um, and the group that had been most actively supporting the, uh, the Bolsheviks during the civil war and during the, the incorporation of that area into the Soviet Union. Uh, so despite the fact that the Abhas were not a majority, even in this small territory of Abkhazia, um, they represented around around 30%. And ethnic Georgians were a little bit more than that. Um, but um, So they were given this, this designation. Um, and so uh, 
this creates this ethno-federal kind of a, uh, some people call it a matryoshka nationalism with larger units within smaller units, but it kind of zeroes some idea that a territory belongs to to an ethnicity. So that's one element of this nationality policy. And again, this is done with this idea, if we give them that territory, then we can depoliticize nationalism because nationalists and nationalism aspires to have an ethnic group match a territory. And so we're going to give them to the, this to them so they don't need to, to aspire to that. Uh, the other element is uh, this indigenization, or the, the Russian word karenizatsya, um, which I guess the best translation is this indigenization, which is kind of ugly in English. But um, this is kind of a, a, a policy of, of affirmative action. And when I teach Soviet history in Georgia, in, in, in Eurasia, I often have to explain what what affirmative action is. Um, I think for, for English-speaking audiences and American ones in particular, that is a, is a concept that, that people are really familiar with, uh, but a, a kind of positive discrimination and a specific decision that we are going to co-opt and recruit representatives of these local ethnicities into the leadership. We're going to give them a stake. So we're going to give them advantageous opportunities in government, uh, in the party um, and in in education, in order to develop a cadre of leaders from that ethnicity that will um, buy into the the goals of of the Soviet Union and the creation of of Marxist Leninism and and so forth. And as I understood, this resulted in very real allocations of um, money, resources, and stuff that people like Lakoba use, basically, right. Indeed, yeah. So sort of in the same way that uh, class, since the, the Bolshevik regime decided what classes are to be favored, and in the same way that class determined your status and, and what opportunities you have, uh, ethnicity has the same kind of uh, element to it. So if you're deciding that territory belongs to a particular ethnicity or you're deciding that opportunities depend on being of a particular ethnicity, then that uh, means that yeah, real um, opportunities and real allocations uh, can depend on that for better or for worse. So the next question's kind of loaded, but I imagine many of our listeners aren't really sure what the difference between Abhazians and Georgians really are, particularly as many Georgians think Abhazia is really part of Georgia. Could you explain the difference between the two groups and the relationship between them as it relates to Lakoba's case, not, you know, mm-hmm. the whole history? Yeah, so... Uh- Georgians are uh, obviously the dominant ethnic group within within Georgia. Um, there are sort of subgroups among the Georgians, and there are even sub uh, languages or dialects. And this, this is a political question. You can get into a lot of trouble about talking about it. You know, are they dialects or are they languages? Um, but there are several different subgroups of within within Georgians. Um, Abkhaz are not related to Georgians uh, linguistically. Uh, so the Georgian language belongs to its own family, which has no relationship or no proven relationship to any other family uh, that exists. It has nothing to do with Slavic or Indo-European. Um, the Abkhaz speak a language that is not related to Georgian, but is part of the Northwest Caucasian language family, which also includes some other languages of the North Caucasus, like uh, Adige and, and Abaza and the, the language Ubuch, which has died out and doesn't exist anymore. Um, so it's, it's that's completely different too. Um, the reality is that these kind of ethnic identities 
I think if you look back uh, into the into the 19th century and early, even into the, the the early part of the 20th century, um, there's quite a lot of of malleability between them. Um, and um, you know, if you read um, anthropological expeditions by Russian and Georgian anthropologists in in the late 19th century, they they talk about visiting different villages where, um, in some cases, the women speak Abhaz and the men speak uh, Georgian. Um, there is a close relationship with one of these ethnic subgroups of Georgians, which are the, the Megrelians, which listeners may be even less familiar with. So uh, Megrelia is the, the Western part of Georgia. Sometimes it's, it's called Mingrelia with an N. Um, in, in Georgian, uh, Megrelian or Samagrelo is that, that area. Uh, and those uh, are the names in Georgian that often end not in the traditional, in the more common Shvili and Adze, uh, or idze, but that ends in uh, ua, ia, ava, those kind of uh, names. So uh, the most famous Mingrelian, of course, is Leverenti Beria, and that's a, that's a Mingrelian name. Uh, or you know, um, They might not want to claim him. <laughs> uh, well, I think that's inevitable they do. And Liberia himself was not only Mingrelian and, and spoke this Mingrelian language, but, but actually was born in Abkhazia. Um, many of the Georgians who live in Abkhazia and they, the Georgian population is more traditionally mostly in the southern part of Abkhazia. Uh, they are primarily Megrelian, uh, and they have these Megrelian names, uh, and they speak Megrelian. But there's a tremendous amount of overlap between often sometimes Megrelians and Abkhaz, uh, and this becomes part of discourse and, and, and debates you know, about how to ca- categorize um, the population. And depending on who you include, then the, this, the, the census and things reflect a different um, percentages of, of populations and so forth. But um, you know, at different times, there was different advantages to being one or the other. So in the 19th century, um, just, uh, up until 1905, the Abhas were considered a, a punished people because of the, their participation in the, the Caucasus Wars. Um, but then uh, in the First World War, uh, they were in the category like Muslims who were not eligible for, uh, could not be conscripted into the military. So it became advantageous to be to be Abhas. So many people would consider themselves Abhas and not Megrelian or Georgian. Uh, and then in the 1920s and 30s, when Lakoba was dominant, it was the opposite was the case of so people reclassified themselves from Megrelian Georgians to the Abkhaz. And then uh, you know, during the Beria period, when uh, after Lakoba died and when uh, the Georgians became dominant, then it went the other way. And, and so there, there's a fluidity in, in these kind of identities. Um, and so it's, it's really, a I think, mostly a, or in large part, a result of this nationality policy that these conceptions of identity as being clearly defined uh, and unchangeable uh, really come or primordial uh, really become central and that that isn't something that you you see so much uh, in earlier periods uh, but they are they're certainly linguistically different um, and they came to again in part because of the affirmative action uh, and zero-sum nature of this ethno-federalism came to identify themselves in different ways and came into conflict with one another and because again because of these um, the advantages of titularity of being the titular nation a nationality um, it created a basis for for trust and for building networks and that's why it becomes important for for Abkhazia for Lakoba becomes it uh, this conception of, of Abkhaz identity and that we are the chosen people to be the titular nationality in this particular territory uh, gives a, a basis for creating these informal networks and a basis of trust. So you noted that Lakoba's power was centered on the Sofnarkom, the state organs rather than the party organs. Um, do you think this was unusual? 
Uh, my experience is that it's usually the party bosses who rule. And why would he choose to rule through the state organs rather than party ones? Yeah, I think in, in some cases, there's a kind of serendipity that uh, elites will grab those institutions which are closest to them. And it's often not clear you know, where real power lies. And you see this often in, in Soviet politics, in, in elite politics, you know, when, when there's a succession struggle, uh, that different elites grab those different bodies of power which they're closest to. Um, and and uh, there may be an element of that here, that, that this in the political conflicts when uh, Lakoba really sort of came to power in, in 1921, 1922, that those were the institutions that he had closest to hand. Um, I think there is though an element that in, especially in autonomous republics and sometimes even in union republics, it, it really uh, in the first decades, it wasn't an absolute rule that the first party secretaries had to be of that ethnicity. That became the rule later. Um, but in this early period, it, it wasn't it wasn't always the case. Uh, and uh, in the 1920s, uh, in Abkhazia in particular, um, there were 10 different party secretaries during uh, that oh, decade. Wow. <laughs> so like a new one each year. <laughs> even, even more, even faster. So from 1921 to 1930, there were 10 different party secretaries. None of them were, none of them were Abkhaz. Um, some of them Lakoba was friendly with, um, others Lakoba was less friendly with. Um, ultimately, in 1930, Lakoba is able to appoint his own client, an ethnic Abhas, into that position. And from 1930 to 1936, um, that creates a kind of stability for Lakoba, that he has his guy as the party secretary. Uh, but I think also an, another element is that um, there was a lot more oversight of the party. That you know that you have the central com- control commissions and you have the constant party reviews um, coming from the center. And Lakoba was he was certainly a party member. He was a a member of the presidium of the um, the local committees. It was in Abkhazia. It was an obkom, a blesnoy komitet. Um, he was also a member of the Georgian Central Committee of the party. But his main role was as this um, the head of the the um, of the head of the government institutions. Um, but I think in part because of that. Um, sense in which the party organs and the OPCOM was was much more under control um, of of the central party organs in in Tiflis and in Mos- in, in Moscow, and, and that being in the having his power in the in the government institutions gave him more leeway and freedom. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Cool. So what sort of problems did Lakoba face in the 1920s? And were they unique to Abkhazia? Or are they the same kinds of problems every Soviet boss faced? Yeah, so I think kind of a mixture of things. So this gets to the kind of underlying political game that results from this intersection of um, of informality and informal politics of, of clientelism and, and nationality policy. Um, because you have a situation where the center needs to have their local elites in, e- in each territory. And in the periphery and in these ethno-federal territories, you need a titular or at least a plausibly representative titular group that's going to be in charge in that particular territory. Um, that means they have to choose. And the thing is that 
once they've made that choice, that gives the local elites who have been chosen, who represent that titular group, a, a kind of power over the center. And this is, I, I often compare it to the situation that I experience in my NGO role, and that um, there's something called grant capture in the NGO world. So if you're a granting, granting organization and you have a competition for a grant, um, during the, the application process and the competition, you as the grantor have a lot of power because you know you can decide what's the application procedure going to be, what are the hoops that the applicants have to jump through. Once you've made your choice, though, your success depends on the success of the grantee, the, the, the person you've chosen to give the grant to or the organization or whatever that you've chosen to give the grant to. That all of a sudden alters the power dynamic. It, it gives them kind of power over the grantor. You can say, well, we need higher salaries. You know, we need more white SUVs to do that, you know, whatever it is um, to e extract more uh, from, from the center or to extract the kind of protection from the center. Um, so that, that's, I think, in part what's going on here. The job then for the, uh, for the local elites, uh, first of all, is to keep their patrons happy and to implement the things that's required of them. They also need to keep their local constituency happy at least to a certain extent, and how, how that constituency is defined changes in different places and in, in different periods. And I think this gets perhaps at why uh, La Coba cultivated this, this kind of popularity, especially with the ethnic Apas in his in his in Abkhazia and his constituency. Um, but they always had this problem that somebody another group another group could potentially replace you. <laughs> you had to keep on on the watch for potential alternate elites. So you had to cultivate this this kind of image of irreplaceability, and block the uh, the opportunities of of a, of a different group of a rival group um, from creating a uh, a viable um, titular um, network that could that could take your place. So the goal then became, on the one hand, keeping your patrons happy and, and fulfilling tasks, but on the other hand, keeping your constituency happy and uh, making it clear to your patrons that it would be more costly to replace you. Uh, than it is to keep you and to defend you. Uh, and so in the 1920s, um, and I think that in, in some way or another is true in, in you know throughout the Soviet Union, you know, given the, the realities of informality, um, this titularity and this, this uh, element of ethnicity puts an extra layer on that because it's particularly hard to replace. So there's, it makes it particularly hard to replace and it also uh, makes a, a, a particular necessity that the ethnic, that the local Elites have to be representative, uh, or at least plausibly representative of that of that particular ethnic group. Um, you also had in in Abkhazia in the 1920s, and I think it's one of the things that make this case so interesting is and kind of extreme um, because of exactly these elements of Abkhazia that gave it its opportunity and its 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 resources. What made it so politically uh, important? The fact that it became a major center of production of tobacco. And by the Second World War, it was one of the biggest um, places of production of tobacco in the whole Soviet Union. Uh, and because it had this um, element of, of political capital resulting from the elite uh, presence in dachas and sanatoria and then the, the tourism aspect to it. So um, whoever could control that, uh, would th this element of FaceTime that, that controlling it um, gave access to. So um, this fact of being the subtropical corner of a northern empire, um, and especially tobacco, 
gave all kinds of opportunities um, for for shenanigans, and and that is um, kind of a central af- aspect of the book. Um, the um, the machinations that are involved in in tobacco production and tobacco sale of playing the different elements of the Soviet ethno federal system, um, playing the different uh, levels of the hierarchy off against each other. In order to get more profit from from tobacco, you know. So on the one hand, they're extracting tobacco from the peasants, and often it's kind of a racket where they're trying to buy uh, buy it at the lowest poss- possible price from from the peasant, and then resell it at the highest pro- possible uh, price to the different trade organizations of of the Soviet state. Um, and the kinds of of corruption, the kinds of um, Conflicts that emerge in the 1920s are really kind of spectacular, and they they resemble more the the crazy 1990s than they do um, the the Soviet period. Cases of of murder, of of kidnapping, of arson, uh, assassinations, or at least accusations of all of these kinds of things, and that's all we can really deal with. And you know, we're not not a court of law; we're dealing with you know with documents and you know trying to understand rather than than pass judgment on on these kind of things. Um, I think an, another element of what's going on here is has to do with patronage and something that is also more general to informal politics. Um, If you are a local elite, you need to turn to the people you trust most. And those are often the people who are closest to you. And they might might be relatives, people from your village, people who who are part of your extended family. Um, Those are not always the most uh, effective people or the most qualified people. And, And so you have to balance that with uh, other local elites who uh, also have local interests. Um, and in the case of, of an ethnic territory like this, in the case of, of, of um, Abkhazia, um, there were other ethnically Abkhaz elites uh, who were kind of necessary, and they would often fulfill the, the, the higher roles. They would be the commissars of, of different heads of different commissariats um, and filling other party roles and so forth. Um, at one point, Lakoba comes into conflicts with other Abkhaz elites exactly because they feel that he's uh, making he's taking advantage of them and that he's giving too much privileges and too much leeway uh, to his close relatives and to people from his uh, extended kin network and from his his village. And Lakoba at one point faces a revolt from the other Abkhaz elite against him, and this creates opportunities exactly for this creation of an alternate. Uh, or an alternate viable um, elite network that could possibly replace it. And in some cases, external actors or other adversaries of, of Lakoba uh, in, in Tiflis or in Abkhazia try to make use of that to unseat uh, Lakoba. And I, I think that that kind of thing um, is probably typical in patronage and clientelistic relationships in other parts of the Soviet Union. But again, this ethnic aspect, this uh, necessity to be to represent titular nationalities adds an extra layer to it. I'm going to be honest, when I was reading some of these scandals, there was a little bit of feeling that it was like Tony Soprano's New Jersey, because I got to say the Russian, you know, elites I study don't have that many family members that may or may not have whacked somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Would you mind telling our listeners like one or two of these really juicy scandals that uh, Lakova and his relatives were allegedly involved in? 
Yeah, and there, there are a bunch of them, and they come up uh, again and again in different denunciations and in different investigations that take place. And that that's kind of explains the, the, the structure of the book and even the subtitle. So the subtitle is The, the Trials of, of Nestor Lacoba. And I, I mean the trials in the, the more general sense, uh, well, both of, a, of, a, of a, like a, a trial in a court, but also a trial in the sense of a, 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 um, a, a, um, a thing one has to go through, like the trials of, of, of Hercules. Um, because in the 1920s, there are both. There is a series of, of tribunals, of investigations, of attempts to unseat Lacoba that bring up all of these accusations. Uh, and then ultimately, there is this, this final show trial uh, at the end. Um, but... Uh, the, some of the things that, that come up, um, one of them involves Lacoba's um, half-brother, Misha Lacoba, uh, who was also at, at some points head of the, the militia, the local police. Um, and he, at, at one point in one of the letters in this Lacoba collection that he sends to his brother, um, is describing this uh, a, a attempt to capture some local bandits, but he's sort of bragging there about his skill at... Um, bumping off people by staging an escape. <laughs> so committing murder by, by making it look like, like an escape. Um, and there are um, cases of kidnappings. There's um, one particular element that I focus on in, in some of the chapters is um, kind of a, a local, even more micro history. Um, it is focusing on one particular tobacco producing region populated by Armenians. Uh, that's called Sebelda. Um, and in that region, you have this clans of, of local Armenian leaders who uh, really exactly are doing mafia kinds of stuff. And it talks about doing hit jobs in Istanbul and you know, killers coming and taking out different people. Um, and and there's uh, very clear indications that uh, you know all of that is going on, but that they are protected you know, by, by Lakoba. And then what ultimately is more important about all of this is that on the one hand, it's so extreme that it attracts attention from the center. Uh, and that's what leads to some of these investigations and trials. So um, you have investigators from the, the Central Control Committee, so sort of like the Inspector General of, of the party. Um, and you, you have to imagine have seen, have seen everything. You know, they, they, you know, there are no strangers to the kinds of corruption that took place uh, in, in, in that period. And yet they are shocked by the degree of it going on in Abkhazia. Um, the other element, though, is that every time you have this kind of investigation, time and time again, Lakoba uh, makes use of his patronage relationships and ultimately makes use of this irreplaceability uh, and gets the support of the central elites, the Georgian central elites in Tiflis, the, the heads of the, of the Georgian party and of the Transcaucasian party, uh, who are willing time and again to uh, brush things over, to whitewash things, even to sort of uh, push things under the rug that uh, investigators coming from the center, coming from Moscow, are trying to get to the bottom of <coughs> Sorry about that. Um, so what sort of things change in the 1930s and how does this affect Lakoba's ability to retain his leadership post? Yeah, so things obviously do change uh, in the 1930s. So all of that, all of those machinations involving tobacco and, and these other elements of, of criminality, I mean, this is at the, the peak of the, of the new economic policy. And when that changes, obviously, the opportunities for for trading uh, tobacco to the highest bidder among different Soviet trade institutions 
falls away. And um, by the early 1930s, by the late 1920s, and, and it reaches Abkhazia really from 1931, um, you have the uh, the collectivization campaigns where the state is is demanding um, deliveries of amounts of particularly tobacco that, that be delivered. Uh, and so that, that changes the picture entirely. Um, and it creates this situation where Lakoba, uh, like I said early at the very beginning, it, it creates a situation where Lakoba is now trying to justify his own position in front of his own client group, his own his own uh, constituency in the Apas peasantry uh, who are being pressed by this collectivization. Uh, and in February of 1931, uh, they actually stage an uprising. Um, and there were uprisings all over the Soviet Union against collectivization. But in this particular one, they, uh, they demand, we want to talk to Lakoba. And, and Lakoba uh, actually comes and meets with them. Um, it's part of the mythology of Abkhazian historiography that Lakoba had such good connections with Stalin that collectivization was canceled. Um, that is not entirely true. <laughs> and collectivization really, really does resume um, after the next year. But he does sort of make this this deal and calm things down. But his relationship with his own uh, his own constituency and the Abhaz peasantry and his relationship with the center changes very much. And the opportunities for the, the kind of machinations of the 1920s um, really change. Uh, and the other thing that, that changes is the, the approach towards ethnicity and, and nationality uh, and Soviet nationality policy uh, that takes place in the early to mid-1930s. Um, so there is this kind of great turn in the approach to, to nationality. So this, this idea of um, of, of affirmative action, of indigenization, is, is, it's really based, again, on this idea of co-opting nationalism and of giving um, opportunity uh, and aspirations of form of national uh, identity to ethnic groups so that they don't need to pursue nationalistic agendas. It's also based on a fundamental idea of what they talked about as the, the greater danger principle. So in the 1930s, they consciously decided in implementing those policies that the great danger is is chauvinism from the big nations, particularly Russia, though in the case of, of Georgia, the, the Georgians are the larger nationality, even though they're small in the, in the larger context. Um, in the 1930s, that, that begins to change. And part of that, I think, is the, um, is the rise of Stalin and Stalin's emphasis uh, in his socialism in one country policy that, that appeals to, to Russian nationalism. Um, so you have a, a reversal of that idea that the greater the greater danger is the chauvinism of the great of the bigger nations and that local nationalism isn't such a big danger. To a shift that maybe uh, local nationalism is more of a danger than we thought before. And maybe great the, the chauvinism of greater of bigger nations isn't so dangerous. So you have this shift. And uh, some argue that that this Karanizatsi indigenization uh, that it, it disappears, that it ends. Uh, in the mid-1930s with this turn. Um, but I, I think that that isn't really the case. What what happens is that it, it changes and it shifts emphasis. emphasis. So from the mid-1930s, this affirmative action and indigenization uh, policy uh, applies mainly to the larger nations and particularly the ones that have, um, that have union republics. So it goes from the kind of what they call an ethnophilia um, of the 1920s, where every tiny nationality was encouraged and given opportunities and, and resources. Um, from the mid-1930s, it goes towards consolidating the, the larger nations. And I think another really key element, too, is, um, first of all, the role of the rise of the network of the Valenti Beria, and we can talk about that, which is, I think is also a critical element of the book, um, but also the... Um, the domination of, of of Georgians and and the position of, of the Georgian Republic um, in this ethno federal hierarchy of, of, of nationalities, 
from the mid-late 1930s uh, and throughout the rest of, of the Stalin period. So what you have is this growing um, importance of the Georgian nationality, growing, growing um, political weight. Um, in 1936, this, this Transcaucasian federation that, that the Georgians were forced to join is, is dissolved. Um, you have uh, greater emphasis on, on Georgian ethnic identity, and that inevitably changes um, the that underlying game and the necessity of keeping a, a, a at least plausibly representative titular elite group because it's with this emphasis on the larger nationalities that that isn't so important anymore so that begins to undermine the the position of lakoba so let's talk about lakoba's actual trial um court trial not the difficulties he faced um what happened during his court trial and was it similar to the trials of other party bosses at the time or was it unique well, I think to to put that trial in context, um, so it's in some ways it is uh, typical um, of of other districts like that, and and even uh, a month before there was a very similar show trial that took place in the neighboring autonomous republic of Ajara. So very you know very similar thing, but there are some aspects which. In, which make it particular. And I think to understand that particularity, um, it, it is necessary to talk about um, the changes that were happening in the Georgian Republic with the rise of Leverenti Beria. And uh, one of some of the most interesting documents in this Lakoba collection at the Hoover Institution are the the correspondence between Leverenti Beria and Lakoba. And Lakoba at first, I think, saw Beria uh, as this ambitious guy and as somebody to cultivate as a potential client and then ultimately as a potential patron. And Beria was going places. You know, he was, uh, he was the uh, police uh, official in the mid-1920s who rose from this secret police into the party uh, leadership. And in doing that, and this is what makes Georgia kind of different from other republics, that um, Beria brought with him an entire cohort from the secret police that took over the leadership of the party. So uh, on the one hand, the, the 1930s and the Great Terror in Georgia are a political struggle between Beria and the previous Georgian elites who made up the previous um, Caucasian network. And so going after them uh, and really decimating them. And, and you know, Beria, on, on, on one hand, is, is a very loyal patron to his own clients, but his clients come from a very different background from the old party elite. Um, in 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 Tiflis, and that made up the Georgian and Transcaucasian Party network. You know, they're they're younger. Uh, they don't have this revolutionary background. Uh, they're much much less educated. Often they come from the regions. They're less literate, mostly. Um, I think in, part of it is is a kind of resentment that builds up in, among the barrier guys who are looked at as policemen thugs. Another really interesting and important thing that one could go on about though is uh, is football. <laughs> um, Beria recruited uh, secret policemen from football players and recruited football players from secret police uh, officials. So often the the, the torturers um, in the, the secret police prisons would beat people at night and play football during the day. Um, anyway, so that is going on uh, within the in Tiflis and with this takeover by Beria of the central leadership. Lakoba again was cultivating Beria, and in these documents, these communications that exist in the. In the, in the personal papers in the Hoover Institution, uh, you see uh, how Lakoba backed the candidacy of Beria. And there's a particular discussion um, with Stalin when Stalin is there um, about who should be the next head of the Transcaucasian party. 
And Beria, uh, Stalin write, rather, Lakoba writes this description of the conversation to Beria. Um, and it may be just that he's trying to increase his importance in Beria's eyes. That's fully possible. Um, but he's, in the very fact that he's doing it, I think, is important, demonstrating that Lakoba, that it is I who uh, said to Stalin that, that Beria is the man. Beria is the guy who can get things done. So Lakoba, I think, is looking at Beria uh, in the same way that he's cultivated other patrons in the past. And, and that this relationship will continue. But when Beria comes to power, that in displacing the old Caucasian uh, network, um, he also has uh, the, the different goals in mind of consolidating his power. He comes into conflict with Lakoba um, fairly quickly um, in the mid-1930s, partially, I think, because of uh, that Lakoba doesn't like the, or rather Beria doesn't like the fact that Lakoba has this, this separate uh, and almost independent power base. It also has to do, I think, with the changing approach from the center towards patronage and towards informality in politics. And this, I think, is one of the larger explanations of why the terror of 1937 takes place. And there are multiple reasons. Um, but I think one of the reasons is this desire by Stalin and the center to exactly root out these local power bases, to get rid of these nests. Um, and uh, and that happens throughout the Soviet Union. So that combination of things, this um, coming to dominance of of Beria, um, who this change of emphasis in nationality policy, which you know, favors the, the Union republics and the Georgians in particular, um, and this desire to or this this imperative to to get rid of these local patronage networks and displace them, ultimately leads to the destruction of the Lakoba network by the Beria group. Um, and again, this is in part not just a personal conflict between Beria and Lakoba, although it comes to be seen that way. Um, it, it's a really a political struggle between different groups. And Beria is in the same way destroying the Georgian ethnic uh, leadership of, of the previous party elite. Um, the first stage of this is the mysterious death of, of Lakoba. And uh, Lakoba, um, after being sort of pushed around and sort of pushed, uh, Beria replaces the first party, the, the OBCOM party secretary, the district committee secretary, and undermines this uh, cozy relationship that Lakoba had finally developed by getting his guy as the party secretary in Abkhazia. So Beria gets rid of that guy. Um, he then uh, invites Lakoba to Tiflis, to Tbilisi, to dine with him. And they have a meal at, La at Beria's house. And that night they go to a theater. Lakoba is ill uh, and he dies that night. So make of that what you will. It's not the only case of somebody meeting with Beria and, and suffering a mysterious and unexplained death. Um, but <laughs> um, it, it is also the case that, that uh, there are all sorts of reports from doctors in the personal papers about the state of, of Lakoba's health. So he really was in, in pretty poor health. Um, but the um, almost inescapable conclusion is that probably he, he was poisoned. Um, so Lakoba is, uh, this is December of 1936, so really before um, the beginning of the, 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 the terror of 1937. Nadezhda Mandelstam has this quote where she says that Lakoba, for all his faults, he, he died in time. That was his luck. Um, Lakoba's body is returned on a, on a funerary train uh, to Sukhum, to the capital of Abkhazia, um, within great pomp and circumstance, party leaders from all around are present at his funeral in Sukhum, and and he, you know, it's on the front page of the newspapers. He's buried with great honor. Gradually, though, over the succeeding months, uh, his uh, clients are 
are arrested and the the terms that he's referred to begin to shift. They no longer praise him in the newspapers and gradually over the next few months, uh, his clients are accused of being enemies of the people. And then finally, Lakoba himself uh, is is accused of, is, is labeled as an enemy of the people. Uh, and then in November of, of 1937, so almost a year after um, after Lakoba's death, uh, a, a, a trial is, a, a typical show trial is staged in which 13 clients, including Lakoba's brother Misha and, and a number of other close associates and some who aren't so close, um, are, are demonstratively put on trial. Many of the same accusations that had come up in those investigations in the 1920s are, are brought out again, but of course, they have to add to them the more typical Stalinist kind of accusations of plots to assassinate Stalin and you know plots to implement uh, counter-revolution with the assistance of Germany and France and and so on. But I think it, the a particular element or what makes it kind of unique is this demonstration that the Lakoba group is is gone, that their history and they're being replaced by a new leadership group, the Beria group, uh, which which is also Georgian. So and this what is happens a to the people who? went to the show trial. Are they convicted? Are they executed? Are they later pardoned and reinstated? What? Uh, almost all of them are sentenced to be executed with, and, and that fulfilled in the next few days. Uh, a few, there are a couple of, of them who are accused who are really only loosely associated and who are like uh, collective farm chairman and things like that. And they, they are sent to labor camps. Um, and I'm actually not sure what happens to them, uh, those those people later on. They kind of disappear. Um, some of those Lakoba officials and Lakoba himself are, are later rehabilitated. Um, but the the vast majority of them are sentenced to death. But that's only sort of the tip of the iceberg. And you know, dozens, even hundreds of Lakoba's clients are, are arrested uh, secretly and are, are, are executed. And not only his, his clients, but his... Uh, his immediate family, and one of the most dramatic element uh, aspects of that is the arrest of of Lakoba's wife, who is also quite famous in her own right, Saria Lakoba, um, and she she is is tortured and beaten to death, um, and Lakoba's nineteen year old son is also later beaten to death, and really the entire extended network of the Lakoba family is is and everybody associated with them is completely destroyed. Uh, but again, this is also overlaid with this element of uh, the. Georgification of Abkhazia that that accompanies this. So, with the coming to dominance of the Beria group, uh, you also have um, a, a overturning of those earlier elements of um, indigenization of uh, of ethnic identity. So, um, they change the uh, naming so that the place names are switched from the Abkhaz version to the Georgian version. Um, play, so, place names are changed, uh, and this later from 1939 is accompanied by. Massive resettlement um, of Georgians, especially from Western Georgia, Megrelians into Abkhazia, um, and ultimately um, in the in in the 1940s, um, the elimination of the Abkhaz language from from schooling for a couple of years, um, and truly really sort of this domination of, of Georgians, which only is reversed uh, after Stalin's death and after Beria's death in 1953 and 1954. I mean, I have to say, from my perspective, that seems incredibly cruel and not necessarily super representative because I look at Kirov in the same time period and I've been going through like RICOM chairman stuff we have like 26 who get arrested as enemies of the people and you know the whole conspiracy nonsense uh, a whole bunch of people in the OPCOM and stuff some of them get shot but the majority of them end up basically getting released in 30 39 40 uh, with a basically our bad um, and go back to work in the party. It's the weirdest thing ever. 
Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, that's really, really quite different. So how is Lakoba remembered in Abhazia since he was effectively erased after his death? Yeah, so um, as I said earlier, I mean, Lakoba is in Abhaz historiography and also in, in Abhaz popular memory. Uh, he is kind of a, a founding father and, and really kind of mythologized, um, you know, in the same way that we talk about George Washington is, you know, kind to children and can never tell a lie, sort of the same way that Lenin was portrayed in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, that, and that whole period is, is viewed as kind of uh, an Akkadia, sort of a, a um, you know, the, the, the time before the fall. And that was this golden period when Abhas were dominant, but also a in their view and in this mythologized version, a, a, a period when, when things were calm when, and everybody was friendly, when everything was happy. And of course, the reality was very different and the personality of, of, of Lakova obviously was, was much more complicated. Um, but I think when the ultimate end, and I think this is one of the, the, the larger conclusions of the book and I think why, it, why I wanted to tell this story um, is that an, ultimately a consequence of this nationality policy, of this emphasizing nationality, of this reification of primordial identity of this kind of zero-sum conception of who territories belong to. Um, it leads to a an ethnicization of, uh, of political conflict. So this destruction of the Lakoba group and the dominance by Georgians is come to see come to be seen not as a political struggle but as an ethnic one and what the Georgians did to us about how they took away they took away from us. This this great leader they took away from us this this Akkadia and Georgians I think look at it at the opposite that um, you know the, the the Lakoba period and Lakoba was this uppity attempt of uh, this minority Abhas to to show that they were dominant um, that they argue that the the, the position the, the importance of Lakoba is is exaggerated um, and it, it becomes part of of the the larger narratives that that develop. Um, in the later years, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, about um, about ethnogenesis, about who the territories belong to, um, and and that in itself, I think, is is, is this paradoxical result of, of nationalities policies and, um, and and kind of unexpected thing that um, after the Stalinist period, you have a, a kind of return to nationalism in the official institutions. So, you know, the, the institutions created, paid for by the party and the state that exist in all of the, uh, all of the entities, um, sort of the union level or, or autonomous republics also have, you know, the institutes of history, the institutes of archaeology, institutes of linguistics, the union of writers in, and so forth. Um, and so you have local elites um, in the periphery of the Soviet Union picking up where the nationalists of the 19th century left off and using these kind of Soviet definitions of, of, ethn of ethnicity, of ethnogenesis, this sort of obsession with that concept of ethnogenesis, um, and often about defining territories. And in those places where you have um, contest over territories, um, like in over, over Nagorno-Karabakh between the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis, but also here uh, between the Georgians and the, and the Abkhazians, um, you have these differing uses of, of history, of archaeology, um, to try, and of linguistics to try to demonstrate. We were here first We've always been here. This territory is ours uh, and, and not yours. So uh, ultimately, um, you could say that the ethnic conflicts of the early 1990s are really fought at first uh, with academic studies, with uh, editorials, um, with linguistic analyses, with um, archaeological studies um, before they were ever fought with, with guns uh, and bombs. 
So what would you like our listeners to take away from this study of Nestor Lakova? Well, uh, on the one hand, I think it, it, it does uh, demonstrate the complexity of, uh, of politics in the early Soviet period. Um, it shows how um, politics worked from, from the bottom up, of the way local elites were able to make use of, um, of their opportunities to get to pursue their own agendas and that they did pursue their own agendas. Um, I think it also adds an element of, uh, to demonstrate how Soviet nationality policy is, is negotiated. You know, and how elites were able to um, to make use of the the definitions and the, the uh, prerogatives um, of nationality policy in order to to pursue their their goals. Um, and again, in, in the the larger uh, takeaway of it, and uh, I think probably the most um, maybe the thing that would have the, the the longest term impact is the the epilogue at the very end of the book, um, which in which I talk about these. Um, the, the longer term consequences um, that these that this Soviet nationality policy had for um, for the later ethnic conflicts and separatist conflicts that that would develop. You know, on, on the one hand, you have um, in the polemics um, in this region, in, in the Caucasus, and elsewhere in the periphery, you you have um, opinions about Soviet nationality policy that give a kind of intentionality to it, and they often talk about the the concept of the of the time bomb. So that the Bolsheviks placed this bomb um, that uh, would explode at some point in the future when the different nationalities would pursue uh, national independence, like right when they would try to make the constitutions that existed on paper that had clauses about um, about the, the right of secession and so forth. That they had planted this this bomb that would that would make that that impossible. And um, it, it seems to me that. Uh, First of all, the Bolsheviks weren't really that foresighted in order to place those those bombs there. Um, certainly, there is an element of divide and rule, like why they decided to divide territories in the way they did, why that they decided to assign particular ethnicities titular status um, over others, and why why some had uh, autonomous republics and some had autonomous oblasts and some got unions and so forth. So there was this element um, of divide and rule to it. That's clear. But it, it seems to me that, and especially after spending so much time with with these documents and you know, really getting to uh, living with and understanding how the Bolshevik leaders in the early decades of Soviet power thought about nationality policy and thought about what they were doing, um, I think they would have really ultimately been shocked that this resulted not in friendship of peoples and in the ultimate disappearance of, of national antagonisms, you know, which was the original purpose of this nationality policy. I think they would have been absolutely shocked that the opposite happened, that it result in, in, in bloody ethnic conflict. So ultimately, I think what if there is a time bomb, uh, it's not the, the creation of this ethno-federal uh, structure and the desire to place these uh, obstructions in the way of, um, of future national independence, because the, the Bolsheviks thought uh, that's impossible, right? They thought the, the future outcome that they envisioned was not that nationalities would pursue national independence, but rather that they would, uh, that, that would become unimportant and that they would unify together. Um, but uh, the the time bomb, uh, if there is one, it's really a two-part one. One is this zero-sum nature of territory. That territory comes to be defined ethnically and defined in a way that can only belong to one nation, right? Every every one of these territories has just one titular nationality. I mean, there are some cases where they stuck two together, like Chechenia Ingushetia or Kabardino Bakari, where they stuck two together. But even there, um, there was clear understanding that this part of it belongs to the Chechens and that part of it belongs to the Ingush, um, which means that that you you can't share. 
it, it, it makes it almost inconceivable that, you know, that these territories could be shared or that identities could be mixed. And so that's the kind of the result of this, the individual level of, of ethnic identification. Um, and the other element, uh, the other sort of time bomb that results is, is exactly this primordial conception of national identity that inadvertently becomes the result of this nationality policy that, you know, even though the, the original intention is a temporary um, uh, concession that they hope in the future will make nationalism and national identity not important. It has the opposite result and politicizes those elements of form that they were trying to give as concessions and ultimately makes people absolutely convinced that ethnic identity is uh, eternal, is unchanging. It's almost like you know the way people in in the periphery of the former Soviet Union and I think all over the former Soviet Union in Eurasia think about ethnic identity is um, kind of like layers of rock that a geologist might study. You know they are fixed, they are firm, they go back into indefinite history, and that is <laughs> that conception, that unchanging conception of identity, and and that is tied to territory is ultimately the thing that uh, that blows everything up in the end. Well, thank you very much, Tim, for coming and discussing this really interesting book. Uh, That's all I have for now. So I guess we should say goodbye. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak about this.